2: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The New Statesman.
0: Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melissa. And welcome to the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. Hello, I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor of the New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have our deputy political editor, Rachel Wearmouth, and our features editor, Melissa Deans who have been digging around our virtual mailbag and have each brought a question. So, Rachel, what would you like to go with first? Uh, so this is a question from Jay, who submitted a question via Spotify. Jay says, what is happening about Baroness
1: Moon and the money she received from PPE contracts?
0: So I love this question, because we often report on a scandal as it's happening, and then we don't follow it up once it's quiet and down on the news agenda. So this is a really good question, and actually there has been... Some big news that uh, was broken yesterday by The Guardian. Michelle Moan, who, in case listeners have forgotten, has repeatedly denied links to a company that was awarded COVID contracts worth £203 during the pandemic. She's actually, through lawyers, acknowledged for the first time that she was involved in the company. This company was called PPE MedPro. And it had contracts to supply millions of face masks and surgical gowns awarded through that controversial VIP lane, which prioritised companies with connections to the Conservative Party and the government. Um, And we should say that a spokesperson for her and her husband, who was also involved, made a full written disclosure of their involvement to the Cabinet Office prior to the award of the PPE contracts. The UK government was fully aware of Mr. Barrowman, who is the husband's role, and that his group would make a commercial profit. And that was a statement given to The Guardian. We actually can't legally say that much more about this case, but that's where the Michelle Moan story is at. And obviously these kind of COVID cronyism co- contract stories are still, you know, greatly en- enraging to the public. If you speak to people who run focus groups, it still comes up. Yeah, and, and with people I speak to yeah. generally about,
1: about the government, that, that feeling of unfairness around that time, as well as the chaos, kind of really, really still resonates with people, I think. One of the things that struck me about this story mm. and another one which came out this this week was about um, Downing Street repeatedly denying that he said, let the bodies pile high. Yes. And um, yesterday at the covert inquiry um, where people have to give evidence under oath, yeah. um, Eddie Lister, who was working in Downing Street that time, confirmed that that was the case and that, that is something that he said. And Michelle Munn repeatedly um, denied that she had any involvement with this. And this deny, 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 I think, contributes to that feeling of just unfairness, distrust and lack of faith in in, you know... Well, yeah. that's Work the thing
0: been carried out on the public's behalf. Yeah. And I'm sure it's not a new thing, but it was normalized during the Partygate revelations mm-hmm. for the press office and other officials and Boris Johnson himself to deny certain things that later turned out to be perfectly true. Mm. And so, you know, we see this in the case of Baroness Moan, who has been denying her links to this company. OK, OK, now she's acknowledged that she does have links to it. It really, really degrades public trust. And of course, there's no way of sort of ousting a peer, is there? There's, there's no, there's no way if I've seen a pillar appointed, yeah. uh, you know, um, but by the
1: governor's in which happens to be in this case, the Conservative Party. But um, yeah. yeah, she denied for years, years that that was the case. So, I mean, as in terms of where the story could go, I don't know. It depends on what, how Michelle Mowen deals with it, I
0: guess. Yeah. And there's plenty of other allegations that The Guardian has, has brought up that... um. Maybe we'll hear more from her on those. Um, But we should also look across the Houses of Parliament to the Commons because there have been even more accusations of misconduct against MPs. And um, the main one this time is an unnamed Tory MP who the former party chairman, Jake Berry, wrote to police about regarding accusations of multiple rapes.
1: That's right. Yeah, it's really um, quite an alarming story, actually. And, you know, I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of sort of sleaze, yeah. Allegations that have gone around Westminster, not just with the Conservative Party, with the Labour Party, yeah. um, which you know is always the we have this going way back to, for example, the Pestminster period, which is some years ago now. I think that was what twenty seventeen. Yeah, it was sort of
0: Parliament's version of the Me Too. Movement. Absolutely, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and that's kind of rumbled on and and has not gone away for for years and years now. And we've had this new Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme, which is supposed to deal with it in an ind- independent way and give you know potential victims or alleged victims somewhere to to go and raise their concerns. But then we we see other allegations where the police have become involved. Mm. And it really just continues to raise questions and to fray the public's faith in how Westminster's operating.
0: Yeah. And the numbers are are quite amazing, aren't they? I mean, there's been an unusual number of by-elections triggered by misconduct. And the IFG, the Institute for Government that keeps an eye on all of these things, says that this is an unusual number, caused by this reason. There's been 19 by-elections in this parliament alone. Um, And the Tory majority has fallen from 80 in 2019, we remember that 80 strong Tory majority, to, to just 50. And a lot of those have been because of allegations against MPs involving sexual misconduct, bullying, you know, either they've resigned over them of their own accord, or they've had to go to recall petitions. I think Peter Bone's recall petition starts... Uh, in a couple of days, um, so it just these stories keep on coming, and like you say, that that does make you think that Westminster is far from a professional workplace. But then again, does it suggest that MPs are being held to account slightly more for this kind of behaviour? Um, I mean, both things can be true, yeah. yeah, right. I mean, I mean, and some of these allegations that go back years. I mean,
1: Peter Bones, for example, yeah. um, those allegations were first raised years ago, and there's a party process and a government process. I mean, what does it what does it say about Westminster long term? I, I guess that, that that these things are going to be dealt with and, they are, and MPs are going to be held to a much higher standard than they may have done in the past, yeah. which is not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's true.
0: Okay, after the break, Melissa will introduce her question. Just give us a clue on what it's on, Melissa.
2: Well, we're going to be taking a look behind the scenes in the New Statesman's newsroom. If
0: you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this.
1: If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day.
0: Melissa what's your question?
2: Um, So I love this question because it's um, it's one I've wanted to be asked by my mother and my children and (laughs) and they don't but this is a question from uh, Lewis who says I'd be fascinated to see how a piece is fact-checked written and published so that the public can see the true value of the mainstream media and what it does could you do this?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, isn't it? And we're not often given the chance to explain our processes. And on the features desk, Melissa, you work across a wide range of subjects. And sometimes these turn into sort of months long investigations. Can you take us through the process? So first of all, commissioning a piece and then the, the whole process of editing and fact checking and, you know, going back to subjects in the piece, getting those responses, legaling. All of that,
2: yeah. So I, th- I thought it would be useful to um, every piece is so different to to talk about two um, two sort of features I I've worked on. One with Anoush, which I'll come to second. The first one was one we ran probably eighteen months ago, which was Stuart McGurk on a year inside GB News, and he Stuart is the former features editor at GQ magazine. He had just started freelancing, and we met for a coffee and talked about a few ideas and this was the one that we both liked the most which was you know let's i think at that point it was only 9 sort of 8 to 9 months into gb news's life and it was chaotic and i think andrew neil has had had gone um, people were leaving. But a lot of the things that made it into the final version of the piece, we, we didn't yet know. We didn't know that Talk TV was going to launch. Um, we didn't know quite how chaotic things were going to get. We didn't realise the sort of culture wars that would, would erupt both within and with outside the station. So I think that was towards the end of 2021. Um, we got the green light. So I I will say yes, then I will go to the editor-in-chief because these things, especially if it's a freelancer, take time. And money, so you know, they do need to sign off um and investment and to be sure that it's something that that works for everybody. And then Stuart went off and started talking to people, and that was a, a four month process. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the story sort of gathered steam. And I think that the 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 difficult and the positive thing was there were a lot of people who wanted to talk to him, a lot of people who were unhappy almost nobody on the record and that's Mm -hmm. very challenging because they were either still working there or they had signed uh, non-disclosure agreements. So there was a lot of us trying to get a few more people on the record because as journalists you always want to but I think we had such a critical volume of voices and stories and great stories and corroborating stories that that you know, ultimately was enough. We had, uh, I remember putting together my email for GB News um, sort of probably just about a couple of weeks before we published because you wait till you've got the final, final version really to think, I don't want to put lots of things to them throughout the process. It's got to be done at the end. Mm. Um, And it was, it was, One page of fact checks, which were embarrassing things like, is it true you launched with only three mics and eight presenters? (laughs) Um, Is it true that that this presenter stood up and screamed at the whole newsroom because someone had drunk her squash? Um, (laughs) To some more serious allegations, which um, which we didn't expect to find, but about quite a toxic work environment. There was sort of a part one and a part two to, to that. They were aware we were doing the piece. We did interview the CEO, Angelos Franjopoulos, and we went to the studio. And um, so we had that side of it. We did have their side of the story. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, then you, then you get your responses back from GB News. And those in themselves, it's actually about a part of the process that is both quite... Daunting, but I actually really enjoy. Oh, really? <laughs> because it's when, yeah, it's when you show your hand uh, and you're really ready and you're really confident. And I think, I think you enjoy it if you feel very confident and you feel very ready. You give them a deadline by which to respond. Um, and I think with a feature, it's it's not as tight. It's probably a news story that, that you and and Rachel would work on, so it might be a few days because there's a lot for them to digest and, and check, uh, and then they do come back and and respond to everything and we include all those denials in there and I think actually they can give a lot of texture to a piece and Mm -hmm. and you could feel, I was rereading it this morning and you can feel in some of the denials a sort of sense of scores being settled and it's sort of actually added to it. So I think one of the the allegations about the launch was that there was a huge amount of people who had just come straight from university who were very inexperienced and working with very experienced journalists from Sky and the BBC Um, and when we to GB News that they had a very inexperienced launch team they said that the more experienced journalists had no uh understanding of the speed and the new digital ways of working and you sort of thing so that sort of added a little bit of of context and flavor in itself
0: yeah you can tell the person who was behind writing that (laughs) response. Yeah. yeah yeah where they lay um It was a great piece. I really enjoyed it. I mean, what do you do when you've got this sort of amazing thing that your reporters uncovered and they have corroborated? I.e., they've you know they've heard it from a number of different sources, and then the the organisation comes back to you and says that's absolutely not true. I mean, what's your responsibility as an editor?
2: I think if there if there's anything you're not sure of, if there's anything you think's unfair, if there's if there are things, there were some things that we didn't include that we decided was an invasion of privacy was Mm -hmm. not in the public interest was not central to the story it was it was very very interesting (laughs) but that didn't justify it um so i you include the denial and i think you know there were there were sort of places where they might deny the language used but didn't deny the story itself so Mm -hmm. i think even in the denials I felt so I think with the squash story that wasn't denied but the right. language used and actually where the squash was stored was disputed <laughs> I, but I you know there was enough actually in the denials that made me feel very confident right um it doesn't remove a small element of of risk um so I think you know sometimes you 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 think is it low is it high is it in the public interest do I feel broadly that that this is right and I think actually we were When we published, we felt enormously vindicated because we heard from so many staff that we hadn't heard from before who were all saying this is unbelievably sort of accurate right? and sending us more stuff. And I think someone sent us a picture of um, Alex Phillips, the presenter, who shouted about the squash with her squash. (laughs) Um, So, so, yeah. <laughs> and Rachel, it's I mean such you, great color
0: yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I really feel like squash now. <laughs> Might start shouting at the producers. Um, Rachel, you um you I mean your process, I mean you've worked at the Mirror, Huffington Post. Here you 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 have to do less of the sort of day-to-day sort of very very fast news turnaround, but still your stories are put together in a completely different way to the features that Melissa works on. In Westminster, you have to rely on a lot on anonymous sources. There's a lot of gossip and rumour. How do you navigate that and make sure that it's fair to the people that you're reporting on?
1: It, it's really difficult and it's not something that... Um you're able to do straight away mm-hmm. um it takes you know you'll you'll make mistakes and for reporters working in politics i think you're constantly using your judgment because um when you're giving given things um a, on a source source level basis you're always having to question like how does this person benefit who mm-hmm. are they connected to how how much how, what what kind of relationship do i have with this person how much do i trust them mm-hmm. um and what does what does it add if anything um and then on the other side of that sort of calculation that a report is making is kind of if you have for example a, a tip or a source about um you know an mp's personal life or you know is it in the public interest to mm. um, pursue that line of questioning because what that mp does in their public life actually has an impact mm. on whether how well or not they're able to represent their constituents for example in terms of how how does how does building a story on a on a daily basis work well there are two lobby briefings every day where the government will kind of reveal its position on various things that have been reported in the last day or so or things that are coming up you know reporters be given vi- uh, guidance on the record and then there's a little section at the end which is known as um, dark lobby <laughs> um, where <laughs> where terrifying. reporters are kind of given little nods or you know positive facial movements on a little, <laughs> little, little bit of guidance where they might
0: censor Direction and it's tricky for you, isn't it? Because your job relies on these sources, but you often have to, you know, say things that are uncomfortable for them. So, how do you maintain those relationships while making sure that you do your job? It's it's difficult. So you've got you have to kind of
1: keep um, mental hygiene as well, because you'll spend a lot of time with these people. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. if you if you're a politics reporter working in Westminster, you'll often be in the canteen with somebody you're about to write about, and you know they'll be sat across the table from you and um, and you'll be on first you, name terms sometimes you'll be on first name yeah. terms but then you have to write difficult stories about them as well and and challenge them and, ha- and that's difficult for them sometimes it's difficult for the reporter as well <laughs> um so I think it's um but it's just something that you have to get used to and I think what I've learned over time is that a really good politician can take the rough with the smooth mm-hmm. and that ultimately your job is to hold them to account and you know tell them when they're stinks sometimes, (laughs) you know, to to sort of use a terrible uh, (laughs) reference there. But, yes, it's not always easy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose on my part, I mean, I'm doing a lot of social affairs reporting and some of those kind of stories can be quite sensitive because often what's happening to people when they're interacting with government services, like um, social work, which is the story that we might talk about. Um, it's, it's very personal, very intimate. And um, often, you know, you have to protect the identities of the people involved in those stories. So Melissa, you very expertly guided me through doing a feature about children's social services, which yeah. um, are in a bit of a state at the moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd really urge people to to go back and read this piece, which um, we published just on, just over a year ago, and for which uh, Anoush won an award. Um, GB News' piece won an award as well. So, I mean, that is one very gratifying bit um, as editors and writers when when that happens. But, yeah, I mean, this was a very different kind of piece, and I think it started with Anoush and I talking about a possible long read. Um, she was keen to do something longer term, uh, and this the original idea was was to find one single social worker that you could really embed with and follow and we weren't able to do that because the access is sort of so hard it's such a sensitive job and you're working with children so what Anoush did instead was uh, I think you followed closely two male social workers and then but then you had a great range of voices who were either towards the end of their careers or at the beginning or working with teenagers or small children but I think they're the you know I think with both of these pieces they're very challenging reporting wise so a huge amount of the work is comes from the writer and I think there it's it is about gaining trust and and time as well I think you know a lot of these these pieces are I think it took you six months four yeah, months yeah and you have to keep going back and yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think it's partly it's not just that it takes that long to get what you need it's that you also want to see them you know you want to see a sort of narrative arc and you want to see how things have changed for them and what maybe we didn't quite anticipate before we went into that story was how tough conditions were for them themselves you know that one was using a food bank um had an eviction notice they were barely making ends meet themselves um and the mental health pressures so you know it was taking the time to sort of really get to know people and to understand the job and to sort of see them at different points in their working life I think is incredibly valuable and I think it's 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 great that there is still room and space and time within journalism to do that because the quick stuff is much easier.
0: I think that's why we wanted to do it isn't it because there were some horrendous stories bunched together Mm. Um, Arthur Lubin Joe Hughes and Star Hobson and Mm. other horrendous stories about children having been killed and um, uh, we wanted not just to you know we, d- we didn't want the news agenda just to move on we wanted to see sort of why did this happen and so it actually doing it over six months gave us time to look at what in the system led or perhaps was a factor in those tragedies but also sort of how the system was dealing with it so I think the reports into those deaths came out while I was reporting the story and so you could kind of see what happened afterwards rather than their names just being headlines and then the kind of news wagon moves on. And I think the the other
2: thing you you know, that there's a particular challenge there was because child social workers, more than doctors, more than nurses, are very, very wary of the press because they're only really talked to when there is a tragedy. And then at other times, they're accused of just wanting to take credit for the the good stuff or the good moments. So you found that there was a lot of, a lot of kind of wariness, that you know, that that more than you might encounter in other stories.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been reporting on the NHS a lot and it's, you know, it's relatively easy to get doctors and nurses and others to tell you about what the state their hospital is in for example but this I found really difficult because they sort of a lot of them have had their sort of fingers burned before by talking to the press because a lot of the stories about social workers will be stories blaming them for horrendous things that have happened in their services so they were very wary. I hope, Lewis, that that's answered your question. Um, And if there's any, you know, pieces that people have particular questions about, then they should write in and ask us because we do read all your questions and hopefully we'll have Melissa back at some point. Thanks, Melissa. I think this was your New Statesman podcast debut. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. (laughs) Thanks so much to everyone who submitted questions this week. We do read them all, so please keep them coming in. If you'd like to send us a question, just go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you're listening on Spotify, you can just scroll down on the episode page and leave a reply. And YouTube viewers can drop a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Rachel Wearmouth and Melissa Deans. We'll be back next week. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes.